Uh, well, hey everyone. Uh, my name is Thomas. I'm the campus minister here with RUF. Um, and like I say every week, uh, at RUF, we believe that you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And at the same time, you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. And I keep thinking of different ways to say this every week. Um, and I was recently listening to the, the like, kind of most popular hymn, um, Amazing Grace. And it has this line. It says, "'Twas grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home." Uh, and that's essentially what we're saying when we say you're never so bad and you're never so good. We're saying that the Christian life is all about grace. It's grace that makes you a Christian. It's grace that keeps you a Christian. And it's grace that perseveres you to the end. Uh, and every semester in RUF, we go through a sermon series. This semester, we're going through one called The Good Life, which is on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew 5 through 7. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is kind of just giving us his vision of what it means to live a good life in a world that feels far from good often. Uh, and so tonight we're going to be looking at a passage that we've already actually even prayed tonight. We're going to be looking at the Lord's Prayer. So I think it's fitting that I should pray before we get started. So let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you uh, for this opportunity to get together Um, Lord, I I know this is a busy time of the semester. Uh, There's a lot of things that are on uh, these folks' mind, uh, whether that's tests or um, thinking about uh, and longing for the break to come. Uh, Lord, I do just pray that you would help us to pause here and to rest, uh, to rest in you, uh, to hear your word, um, and Lord, to learn a little bit more about what it looks like to love you and to love our neighbor through it. And Lord, we need your help to do that. So will you send your spirit to open our eyes um, and help us to see you as you are? All these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so I recently read a, uh, a book written by uh, a woman named Flannery O'Connor. Has anyone heard of Flannery O'Connor? Yeah, that's right. A couple people. Uh, she, was a no- she was a novelist. Um, she wrote some really great stories. The most popular one's called A Good Man is Hard to Find. Uh, they're really weird, but really, really good. Uh, and she actually went to the University of Iowa, sorry, uh, yeah, I know, I know, to study, she, she studied writing when she was there, uh, and while she was there, uh, she kept this prayer journal because she was a devout Christian, uh, and so this, this prayer journal uh, that they've since printed, I got to read, and it, it's beautiful, uh, it's absolutely beautiful, it contains all sorts of uh, just amazing prayers, amazing expressions of what it looks like to uh, deal with our own ambition as we follow God, what it looks like to want to be really good at something and to, to figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus in the midst of that. Uh, and she's just written at one part of this book a just beautiful prayer, like absolutely beautiful prayer. And then she gets to the end and it ends with this line, can't anyone teach me how to pray? <laughs> can't anyone teach me how to pray. Uh, And so as we're talking about prayer tonight, I wonder, is that a feeling that you can relate to? A feeling of, I don't know what I'm doing when I pray. I don't know what's going on. Uh, I think that is a question that most of us can relate to. Uh, Most studies actually show that uh, pretty much every person in America, uh, whether they're a believer or not, uh, prays. Uh, The majority of Americans will pray at least once a month, regardless of if they believe in God or not. It seems to be kind of a, at least in America, it seems to be kind of a universal impulse. 
Um, but the thing about that is, even though most of us pray, if I were to ask you to evaluate yourself on a scale of 1 to 10, how are you doing with prayer? Uh, my guess is that most of you, like me, would put yourself in the 1 to 5 range and probably not in the like 7 to 10 range. So there's this sense that prayer, it's kind of a universal impulse. It's something that we all, on some level, it's something we feel like we should be doing. But there's another way that we just feel hopelessly inadequate at it. Uh, We we feel ashamed at our ability to pray or the frequency of how often we pray. Uh, And in this passage tonight, Jesus meets us at this place. He meets us in this place of inadequacy in our prayer life. And he shows us a way forward. Uh, In this passage, Jesus identifies, I think, two really key problems. Uh, The first is, we don't know who we're talking to when we pray. We don't know who we're talking to. And the second is, we don't know how to pray. (laughs) Two basic things. We don't know who we're talking to, and we don't know how to pray. Uh, So as we look at this passage, we're just going to consider both of those things kind of in question form. So first, we're going to consider, who am I talking to? when I pray. And second, we're going to consider, how do I pray? So who am I talking to, and how do I pray? Uh, First, who am I talking to? Um, It's no surprise to anyone who's been to RUF more than once. I love The Office. Favorite episode, one of my favorite episodes that I've watched recently, uh, Michael Scott, the boss, is kind of, he's out of town, and he puts Jim Halpert in charge Uh, And Jim decides they were supposed to work overtime the next day. But Jim sends out a memo and says, hey, if we all stay late tonight, then we can uh, skip this overtime assignment tomorrow and we can have Saturday off. And everybody's like, Jim's the hero. Everybody's so excited about this. They're like, yeah, let's just bust it out so we can have a day off tomorrow. And so it's a great idea. They get done with their work. Everybody's high-fiving Jim. And they're trying to leave the parking lot. And they get there and there's a padlock on the gate. All of their cars are locked in, (laughs) and they're stuck there. Uh, And they ask Jim, it's like, well, Jim, did you not notify, like, the security guy that we wouldn't be leaving? Uh, And he's like, well, no, no, I didn't do that. And so uh, they're trying to figure out what to do, who they can call, and Jim realizes that he has the security guy in his, like, he has his phone number. Uh, But the problem is, he doesn't have his name in there. Uh, He has it in there as security guy. (laughs) And so Jim decides he's going to call. He hits dial on his phone, and he's like frantically asking, do you guys remember his name? Someone suggests like Elliot. Uh, someone suggests Hank. Someone suggests all these other names. And the guy picks up, and he says, uh, well, hey, uh, hey, chief. Um, uh, are, uh, this is Jim Halpert from where you work. Uh, you're the guy who sits behind the desk, right? The uh, security guy. Uh, I mean, you're a, uh, who, who have I got here? Who have I got here? <laughs> Right? Um, I think this is how it feels when we approach prayer sometimes. <laughs> There's this stammering sense of, like, who, who have I got here? I don't really know if I know who I'm talking to. Uh, and in Jesus' day, as in ours, there, there were many people who just simply did not know who God was. Uh, and in Jesus' way like, of showing this, uh, it, it really showed in the way that they went about prayer. He talks about this in verse 7. He says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. 
Uh, so Jesus here is referencing Gentiles, which would mean just non-Jewish people, uh, people who do not have the Jewish scriptures, so people who do not know uh, the God of the Bible. And a common practice uh, in this area, it would have been a place where they would have had kind of a pantheon of gods. There would be all sorts of different gods that they would have tried to address. And so a common practice at this time would be just like repeating the name of the God over and over and over again, or having some sort of like incantation. And the idea was that if you just say the words right, then you can get the God's attention. Uh, And the assumption behind that was that the God or the gods were kind of disinterested in human affairs. And so what you're trying to do was just like get them to look at you, to get them to pay attention to you. But in contrast, Jesus says to us, to his followers, he says, do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask them, ask him, pray then like this, our father in heaven. So in contrast to this unknown God that many of the the Gentiles at the time would have been praying to, trying to get this God or these gods to pay attention to them, Jesus invites us to call God our Father in heaven, or the, the old English, right, is our Father who art in heaven. What does he mean by that? What does he mean by calling God our Father in heaven? So let's just consider that in two parts. So first, our Father. What does Jesus mean when he invites us to call God our Father? Uh, Father was actually, it was Jesus' preferred designation for God. When he talked about God, he would say, my Father, or your Father, or our Father. Uh, And this was not exactly a a common idea in the world at the time of Jesus. Uh, In our day, there's maybe this assumption that we all, in some sense, are uh, children of God, right? Like we all belong to God in some sense. That was not an idea at Jesus' time. So when Jesus comes onto the scene and he starts teaching people to refer to God as Father, it would have been astonishing. Uh, In fact, Jesus, he spoke Aramaic. And the word that he would have used to refer to God would have been Abba, Abba, which, which means something, scholars think, something like daddy. I don't know if you've ever heard someone pray daddy, God, but it's very uncomfortable. <laughs> um, but Jesus was doing something that was kind of close to that, and he was inviting his followers to do the exact same thing. Uh, so Jesus is inviting all of his followers to the intimacy of calling Jesus their father. But even as I say that, um, I'm aware of the fact that for many of us, this designation of God as Father uh, can seem empty at best and outright harmful at worst. Uh, For many of you, when you hear the word Father, you don't immediately think of uh, a loving person. You think of someone who is distant, someone who is absent, uh, someone who might have been angry or hurtful or at worst, even someone who is abusive. So I want to just acknowledge, I just want to take a second to acknowledge that for some of us, this idea of God as Father is going to be hard. (laughs) For some of us, it might take some time to get to where we can fully embrace and enjoy this designation of God as Father. But I think what Jesus is doing in this passage is he's redeeming this idea for us. He's redeeming this title of God as Father. He says the type of God father that God is, is one we see in verse 8, who knows what you need before you ask him. What does that mean? That means that God is a father who is so attuned to your needs 
that he knows you better than you know yourself. God is a father who is gentle with you. God is a father who is aware of you, who longs to give you good things. And I think because God is so gentle, he is so gentle that he can handle if you getting to the place of calling him father takes time. (laughs) For some of us, it might take time. We have to unlearn a lot of the associations we have with that word. But I think God is such a good father that he can handle that. So that's what we mean by our father. But what's the second part? In heaven. We're supposed to call God our father in heaven. Uh, Most of us, when we hear heaven, uh, I think of like kind of clouds and harps and streets of gold and kind of like the comics that you see in the newspaper with people sitting on clouds, making funny jokes. St. Peter is somehow involved. Uh, That's what we think of when we think of heaven most of the time. But biblically, heaven is not so much a location as it is kind of a description of God's authority. The fact that God is our Father is in heaven, it's not meant to tell us kind of where he is, right? It's meant to tell us something about who he is, uh, what sort of God he is. Uh, Psalm 115 says this, says, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. See, the fact that God is in the heavens, it doesn't mean that he's in a particular location. It means he is the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, and he does whatever he wants. That's what it means that God is in heaven. So when we put these things together, that God our Father is in heaven, it means not only that he is attuned to our needs and gentle with us, but he is also powerful enough to terrify the things that terrify us. When you hold those two things together, you get a completely radical concept of who God is. It's a God who is both gentle and powerful, a God who is filled with love and who frightens his enemies. And that is the unique picture of God that Jesus gives us. So what difference does this make for us in our struggle with prayer? We, we identified at the get-go that Uh, Prayer is kind of a universal impulse, but almost everyone, if you ask them, how's your prayer life going, they would say, I'm like a two out of 10. How does this help us in that struggle? Uh, I heard a story recently uh, of these two foster parents who took in uh, these twin 18-month-old boys. And uh, their first night, you know, they get the boys settled in their new room and they put them down to go to sleep, and shockingly, after they put them down, they're completely quiet. Um, And I don't have, I've never had an 18-month-old child, but I have had an almost seven-month-old child, and that does not happen. Um, And so the dad is obviously confused, and so he goes into the room to kind of see what's going on. And when he goes in the room, he doesn't find these boys asleep. Instead, he finds both of the little boys awake, face down into their pillows. Their pillows are soaked with tears, but neither of them is making a sound. You see, it turns out uh, that these boys in one of the previous nine homes that they had been in had been beaten for crying. They'd been beaten for crying. And they just knew that they had to stifle their cries, even at that young age, because they knew bad things were going to happen if they cried out. But what happened is, after a while, they ended up staying with this couple. And over the course of two years, these kids began to cry a little bit more. 
They began to be a little bit more normal in their emotional capacity. And they were adopted a couple years later, and they were both judged to be within the normal range of intellectual and emotional capacity, which is a huge change from where they were. Y'all, this is what knowing God as our loving and powerful Father does for us. See, it means that we don't have to hide our tears. Knowing God as a powerful and loving Father means that we don't have to hide our anxiety, which we're so scared to show other people, because we don't want to freak anyone out. It means we don't have to hide our despair. We don't have to hide our doubts and our questions. Our Heavenly Father is gentle enough to sit with us, but powerful enough to protect us. This is a revolutionary concept for who God is. So Jesus meets us in our struggle with prayer, and he shows us that when we pray, we're talking to our gentle and powerful Heavenly Father. But this still leaves us with the question, the practical question, how do I pray? It's good to know who I'm talking to, but how do I pray? Uh, The good news of this passage is that Jesus teaches us how to pray. Uh, the, the, Lord's, uh, the Lord's Prayer is recorded in two different places in the Gospels. Uh, the other one is in Luke chapter 11. And the disciples are uh, talking to Jesus, and they just ask him straight up, teach us to pray. <laughs> and what does Jesus say? He says, okay, here's a prayer. Here's a model prayer for you. Uh, the simple fact that Jesus doesn't, like, shame them <laughs> and say, like, seriously, like, you guys have been like in, you know, going to synagogue your whole life and you don't know? Come on. And Jesus gives an honest answer to an honest question. And so we're going to turn and look at the Lord's Prayer now, just the actual thing itself. Uh, And disclaimer, uh, there is a lot going on in the Lord's Prayer, and I cannot and should not cover that all (laughs) right now. Um, So if you want to go a little bit deeper on the Lord's Prayer, I did print out a couple things over there on the book table Uh, It's from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and it just kind of breaks down what the Lord's Prayer actually means. So if you're looking for a deeper resource, go grab one of those on the back table. It's really helpful. So the Lord's Prayer, it can kind of be easily broken down into six, like, petitions, six things that we ask God for. Uh, The first three deal with our concern for God's glory, and then the second three turn to our own needs. So we start with God, and then we move to our own needs. So let's look at the first three. Um, the, first, the first three express our concern for God's glory. So you can see in verse 9, it starts with our Father in heaven, which we've just talked about what that means. Hallowed be your name. Uh, when was the last time you said hallowed in normal conversation? That's, that's not a common word that we use. Uh, hallowed simply means to declare to be holy or to recognize that something is holy. Uh, Jesus is inviting here to say something like this. Our Father in heaven, move us to reverence of your beautiful name. He's inviting us to to pray this way. And then second, we're, we're to pray, your kingdom come. We're not only supposed to view God as a gentle and powerful father, but also as the rightful king of the universe. And we're, we're to invite him, build your kingdom here. Start with my heart and let it spill out into all of the world. And then the third petition, your will be done on earth 
as it is in heaven. We're supposed to pray that God's will will be done more and more in our lives and in the world. We're asking, may my life on this earth reflect your beautiful heavenly authority more and more. So Jesus shows us that kind of our first priority in prayer needs to be God's glory. And you may be wondering, uh, how in the world can we get there from an honest place? (laughs) Like, how in the world can we start with this sort of thing without just faking it, right? Like, didn't Jesus just condemn earlier using prayer as just empty words in order to get God's attention? How is us starting a prayer like this not just us trying to, like, butter up God, to get him to listen to what we have to say? If we don't honestly feel this, how is this different from what the Gentiles would have done at the time? Uh, Our boy Martin Luther, who we already talked about tonight, uh, is very helpful in this. He says this, By our praying, we are instructing ourselves more than we are God. By our praying, we are instructing ourselves more than we are God. And I think what Luther means by that is that in praying this way, in starting our prayers this way, and being so concerned for God's glory, uh, we are being formed into people who more and more love God, who are more and more God-centered in the way that we think about everything. And you don't need to be all the way there in order to do that, right? Like, just by praying this, you're, you're inviting this sort of thing in. By praying this way, you're, you're asking God Return me to the Garden of Eden, where it was clear that every good thing came from you. That's what we're doing when we pray like this. So we start off with our concern for God's glory, but then second, we move to our own needs. Uh, After we pray for God's glory to be more present in our lives, uh, we have needs, and they need to be dealt with. So what are our needs, according to Jesus? Um, I'm going to give you three, and they're all going to start with P, because I'm a pastor, and that's what we do. Um, Our needs are provision, pardon, and protection. Provision, pardon, and protection. Uh, Provision, he says in verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. You see, our need for living a God-centered life, for living a life that is preoccupied with God's glory, doesn't negate the fact that we have very real physical needs that we, we need food. And for the original audience of this prayer, this would have been a very vivid reality. They would have known what it's like to go without a meal for multiple days at a time. They would have known what it's like to be completely dependent on a gracious host to give you food. They would have been able to imagine why they would need to pray like this better than we would with food readily available everywhere. But Jesus invites us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And, and he's not saying here just food. He's not saying that we merely have to ask God for our three square meals. Of course we can ask for that. Uh, but bread, it kind of means that which sustains us, our needs that keep us going. Uh, this can include things like food, but, but also uh, can be finances, can be relationships, it can be rest. It can be something like finding a tutor when you really need help in a class. These are things that we're invited to pray for. So first, we're invited to pray for provision. But second, we're invited to pray for pardon. We see this in verse 12. 
says, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, or perhaps trespasses, if that's what you grew up with. Want to be inclusive here. <laughs> RUF is a community of grace. Um, but the language debts here, uh, it's kind of like financial language being used. Um, the word here, it, it means something like a moral failure. A moral failure that has a, a penalty with it that's normally attached to it. Um, so what we're doing here, this is, it's actually kind of a, a radical thing. We're saying, forgive us the things that have penalties attached to them. Instead of punishment, give us pardon. And that's a, that's a radical idea. And if you're raised in the church, it might not feel very radical. Because <laughs> you might have heard it again and again and again. But it is a radical idea to ask God himself for pardon when you completely deserve punishment. And that's the core of, of the Christian life. I mean, what, what does Jesus say? Repent and believe. You come into the kingdom by being penitent. You come into the kingdom by acknowledging that you're not good enough to be in the kingdom. And so Jesus talks about this here. Um, he says that this pardon will actually produce a pardoning spirit in us. We forgive, uh, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Uh, and Jesus apparently thought this was very important because he picks it up again in verses 14 and 15. He says there, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Uh, and if you're anything like me, when you hear that, you start to feel really uncomfortable. <laughs> like alarm bells start going off. It is Jesus saying that I will not be forgiven by God? Uh, unless I forgive people. Or to think about it another way, is Jesus saying that uh, my forgiveness earns his forgiveness? And what I want to say clearly is that is not what Jesus is saying. <laughs> Jesus is not saying that your forgiveness earns his forgiveness. What Jesus is saying is that God forgives only the penitent. He forgives only people who repent. And one of the chief signs that you have repented is that you forgive other people. It is impossible to truly know the debt that you had before God and to look at people who are indebted to you and not have some degree of compassion. See, if we, can't, if we struggle to forgive people, uh, there are many reasons that we struggle to forgive. And, and I know a lot of you have a lot of stuff in your story that's just really hard to forgive. So I'm not saying that it's easy or that it's quick. But what I am saying is that fundamentally the Christian story is that if we are forgiven people, then it should show itself in us being willing to forgive people. And that might take time, but that's what it means to be a Christian. Uh, John Stott sums it up this way. He says, God forgives only the penitent. And one of the chief evidences of true penitence is a forgiving spirit. So we need pardon. But then third and finally, we need protection. Uh, we see this in verse 13. Uh, Jesus invites us to pray, lead, not into lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Uh, here we're just invited to pray uh, that evil is an actual thing. We're invited to name the fact that there is such a thing as evil uh, and that we need deliverance from it. And this isn't just merely evil out there. It's also evil within our own hearts. We need deliverance from evil, both within and without. So that's just kind of a broad overview of the Lord's Supper. But I want to take a second and think about this really, or not Lord's Supper, the Lord's Prayer. 
Lord's Supper is also really important, but that's a whole different sermon. Uh, That's a broad overview of the Lord's Prayer. But I want to get really practical. How might we use this in our prayer lives? Like, what is Jesus intending for us to do with this prayer? Uh, I want to say pretty clearly, I don't think that Jesus is advocating that we need to use only these words. Like, when you pray, this is the exact way that you have to pray. Um, So where are my perfectionists in the room? You don't have to use these exact words, okay? It's going to be fine. Uh, This is a model for prayer. Jesus is intending this to be a, a springboard, into prayer. So just a couple suggestions of what this might look like. Uh, One that's been really life-giving for me uh, is kind of breaking down the different, like the six petitions here, just breaking them down, and then uh, kind of pausing in between each one. So just pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then take two minutes to just pray short sentence prayers, thanking God for who he is. And then pause and then do the, the, the next petition and then the next petition and the next one. And this is even better when you do it with people. Uh, So shameless plug, Maggie does prayer Tuesdays and Thursdays, 1030, somewhere around the union. And she always prays the Lord's Prayer at that. So you should come find her and do that. So pray the petitions. uh, Also get the daily prayer app. It's really amazing. If you don't have it, you should get it. Uh, Another suggestion, maybe that this might look like rewriting the Lord's Prayer in your own words trying to get the ideas, but rewriting it in your own words. Um, If you're kind of struggling with what it might look like to do this, uh, look at something like The Message, uh, The Message Translation, uh, written by Eugene Peterson. Um, It's a really great way of kind of bringing the Bible into modern English. It can be helpful for stuff like this. Or maybe the uh, New Living Translation or the Passion Translation, something like that, might give you an idea of what it looks like to bring this kind of into our more modern language. And then maybe uh, another suggestion is to just use this prayer as a kind of big picture structure. Uh, It's broken down into kind of two things, right? The first part, God's glory. Second part, our needs. So what if next time you just sit down to pray or you sit down to pray with a friend, you just do two minutes of praising God for who he is and then two minutes of asking for what you need. Some humble suggestions to think about. So Jesus shows us not only uh, who we're praying to, He shows us how to pray, and it's deeply practical. It is a model. It's not something that we're just meant to merely repeat word for word again and again. Uh, So in his kindness, Jesus meets us in this place where we don't really know what to do with prayer. Um, He shows us that we have a Father in heaven who hears our prayer, and he gives us this model prayer. But I just want to ask, at the end of this, how did Jesus' words hit you? especially as you think about your own prayer life moving forward. Many of us, uh, when you hear someone like me talking about like the details and ins and outs of prayer, you're getting the idea that there is a right way to pray and there is a wrong way to pray. And dang it, I'm going to do the right way. We want to follow this word for word. We want to make sure that we're doing it right. And if that's you, I just want to suggest, could it be that deep down you think you will be heard by God for your many words? Could it be that deep down in your bones, in your gut, you think God is a deadbeat dad and you need to make him listen to you by praying perfectly? Others of us might not be feeling that way. Others of us might just be feeling overwhelmed. (laughs) I thought prayer was just talking to God 
And you're getting up here, like, breaking it down into petitions. Like, what are you talking about, dude? This seems a lot more complicated than just talking to God. And if God wants me to pray like that, I don't know that I can do it. But again, could it be that you're thinking that you have to pray a certain way in order for God to hear you? Could it be that you think you're responsible for making God look at you, for making God hear you, for making your own prayer effective? I want to make something just just very clear as we close. Prayer is not a way of earning God's affection. It's not a way of earning God's affection. It's a way of enjoying that affection that you already have. You see, the person that ensures that your prayers are heard is not you. That person is Jesus. See, the person who ensures that your prayers are heard is Jesus, who lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death, was raised, ascended, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And from there, he intercedes for you. From there, he advocates for you. That's how you can know that your prayers are going to be heard. See, the assurance that your prayer, your prayer is heard, it, it's, it has nothing to do with you, and it has everything to do with Jesus' work on your behalf. And when this begins to sink in, prayer can move from a thing that we're ashamed about, that we don't feel like we're doing well, to a thing that we delight to do. It can move from a duty to a delight when we see what Jesus has done. You see, prayer becomes, in this idea, it becomes about being with our Father. It becomes about being with our Father in heaven, who, who is powerful, who is loving. It becomes about recentering ourselves on the most fundamental reality of who we are, children of God, because of what Jesus has done. So I don't know where you are, um, if you struggle with prayer, if prayer is not something that's really even on your radar. I just want to encourage you, uh, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. You don't have to pray perfectly, but in Jesus, you can pray to a God who is your Father, who is crazy about you. Let's pray. Um.